Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello, uh, welcome to the Flight Pass podcast. For this episode, we're talking to Nikki Vanderdrift, Chief Executive for the International Bomber Command Centre. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for joining us. Hi, James. Yeah, so if anyone's listened to this after our November issues come out, we've literally just done a special feature commemorating the 85 years of Bomber Command. And part of that was we wanted to do a little tour of the area. So obviously, Heiner List was coming to visit the memorial. So that was our first experience of it. So maybe start with that. Tell us a little bit more about the memorial and how it came about. Well, it was originally the idea of the then Lord Lieutenant of Lincolnshire, Tony Worth. And he had a very close connection because his grandfather was a one of the very first people in the RAF with license number 72. But also his father served in bomber development down in Newmarket, but he had two maternal uncles who served and didn't come home. And so when Tony became Lord Lieutenant, it became a really good opportunity for him to mark the contribution of the county as Bomber County, but also to put right or wrong because these guys were forgotten and vilified post-war and it was time to set that straight. So we started that process in 2011 with the original idea of having a memorial and then that's grown into this visitor centre, 10 acres of peace gardens, the names of all of the losses around the memorial and an exhibition here which tells the story of Bomber Command but from all sides. And that's really important to us because our ethos, if you like, here is about recognition, remembrance and reconciliation. Obviously, someone like myself, and I've always been interested in World War II aircraft, so I've always known a lot about Bomber Command. But I've also been painfully aware that it's one of those things that a lot of people didn't talk about after the war. I mean, was it particularly hard to get funding for the memorial as a result of that? Well, all of our funding for the whole project, because behind the centre that you see is this incredible resource that we've built, a digital archive, which is free for anyone to access, which is where we've taken documents, oral history interviews, photos, and we've digitised them, preserved them, transcribed them and shared them. And anyone around the world can access that. But also our losses database, which puts in just over 7 million pieces of data about those that didn't come home. And the funding for that bit was, I suppose, easier because it falls within a heritage bit. But we couldn't get government funding for any of this. So it's funded through private donations, through grants such as the Heritage Lottery Fund and Biffer Awards, the Wren Awards, who really put their faith in what was at that time a scoped out idea. And without their faith, you know, from all over the world, we've had donations. Without that faith, we couldn't do what we do today. And it wasn't until actually we hit crisis through the pandemic that we were able to draw down on government funding. But without that government funding, I wouldn't be talking to you today. That's the thing. With Bomber Command, it was a truly international effort, wasn't it? People came from all over to participate and to, to help. Exactly. I mean, and that's a story that very few people know. So over 60 nations were involved in Bomber Command in all sorts of ways, not just serving as air crew, but maybe as ground crew. And in some cases where they hadn't got men to send over, they raised money and they funded an aircraft. And you will find throughout the annals of Bomber Command history, you'll have several squadrons that are named after a country. And part of that will be funds raised in that country towards an aircraft. 
So you've got uh, Ceylon Squadron and 44 Rhodesia Squadron, for instance, and that's a nod to that. Do you find people are coming or you know, from those sort of areas nowadays? Are you still finding like relatives coming out of the woodwork who might be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has limited our international visitors. But pre-pandemic, we'd had visitors from 24 separate countries here. And yeah, literally, the connections are so amazing that we've been able to connect people across continents just because they have a name in common here. And we use social media quite a lot for those searches. And an example of that is we had a lady from Australia who was only three weeks old when her father was killed. Mother had remarried, and it wasn't until mother's death that she found a photograph of her, she assumed her father, but knew nothing about it. And we posted that on our Facebook page and asked for help. And within three days, we had the names of four of the other crew. We had the squadron name. We had the aircraft serial number and the station at which it was taken. And through that, she's been able to connect with people worldwide. That's amazing. And when you think about it as well, it's like if people don't have anywhere to give this information to, it dies with a relative, doesn't it? Whereas if it comes to you, it's archived forever. It is. And absolutely what we're seeing, because we don't hold on to the original, so families will come to us and we will digitise and preserve it. And then it goes back to the family But what that means is that the family not only have a physical copy, but in a wider family, as we all know, when you have, you know, several children, it's what happens to those effects. Those effects are preserved and can therefore be shared. But it's also that general knowledge that spreads around the community. And we estimate the Bomber Command community to be in the region about 4 million people. And that's people who have a direct familial link to someone who served or supported Bomber Command. Yeah, I mean, when we came on our visit, our editor, John, he was looking for one of his relatives on the wall and couldn't find him, but then found him on a separate wall for his, I think it was a Canadian squadron or something like that. But just seeing someone's name on that wall is quite a poignant thing, isn't it? It's hugely powerful. And I'll tell you a story from when we first put up the wall. So the walls were erected in September 2015. We had a formal ceremony in October that year where we had 312 bomber boys with us, the largest gathering since 1946. And shortly after, that, obviously got a lot of media coverage for that. And a gentleman contacted us and asked us whether his mother could come and visit because her elder brother had taken off from Hemswell and had never been heard of again. There was no news as to what had happened. And I think it was the first point that I realised quite how important being able to touch and mark those names individually is because she laid a poppy. We have spaces in amongst the names where you can actually place a poppy. And she touched the name and she said, finally, after 72 years, I can lay you to rest. And it was such a powerful moment. And she then showed me an envelope with a letter and a poem that her brother had sent her that had been delivered to her the day that he went missing. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, not a dry eye in the house, I have to tell you. No. That's similar to when I've been to Normandy and you go to the beach there and someone's put a stone on the grave of a relative. It's a physical thing you can touch, isn't it? You can actually, not closure, but it does give you something. It does. And we've had veterans say that when they've been able to mark a crew member that they lost or something up here, that that is closure and that's how they describe it. And it has very definitely, that and being able to tell their story has a hugely cathartic effect. As you said earlier, you know, they didn't talk about it. And there were lots of reasons for that. One was being vilified when they came back. One was the whole 
political shift from, you know, the bomber boys are going to save us to we can't talk about the bomber boys because of the civilian impact. But also I think there was a, a sense that some of them felt that guilt, even though they knew that they were fighting a just cause. They did feel some of that guilt. But also they were the kind of people that just got on with life and they'd have come back and they rebuilt their life. They had to go back into work. And for many of them, it wasn't until you start asking the right questions that you actually get the real feeling from it. And I think if you listen to any of the 1400 history interviews that we've got on our archive, that you understand that opening up process. So at the beginning, they may often say, oh, we were doing our job. And it's only as it progresses that you maybe hear about the fear or that actually for some of them, it was really the defining point in their life. It formed who they were forever. That's completely understandable. When you think about the average age of the air crew then, it's yes. staggering, isn't it, to think how well, old they were when they were going through. Exactly. I mean, you know, on the walls here, we have just under 58,000 young men and women. Average age is 23. And for any of your listeners that are football fans, that is the capacity of the Etihad Stadium. Wiped out. And I think that really puts it into context. You can visualize that. And so for those of them that survived, having known that those losses were like that and having quite often to move into a billet the morning after a crew didn't come home with their name still above the bed. And I think inevitably it gave them a sense of sort of carpe diem, you know, mm. live for the moment. And not just the air crew, you think about the ground crew as well, you know, getting close with pilots and other members of the air crew and then they're not coming back. And the following day, you've got another group of guys you have to form a bond with. And yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we made a decision very early on that any death in the service or support of Bomber Command warranted being commemorated. So people have questioned why the published figure for Bomber Command deaths was 55,500 and ours is nearly 58,000. That's because we include those ground crew that were killed, the WAFs, the observers, the supporters. But importantly, we also include the lower ranks who, until I think it was 1942, were not listed in the roles of honour, so wouldn't have been counted in that 55,500, but would have been killed in an incident where the rest of the crew were sergeants or above, but weren't listed. Which is crazy when you think about it now, that they'd have been forgotten. Yeah, it is crazy. But I think one has to look back very early on in the war. I think the expectation was that air crew would have always come. We were quite class conscious at that time, quite hierarchical. And I think it was always considered that air crew would have been officer material. And it was only when I suppose the realisation that actually couldn't get enough of them trained and through that that became... But Fortunately, thereafter, if you went air crew, you immediately assumed the rank of sergeant and worked your way up. But it did mean that there was a whole sector that weren't recorded. And I suppose the main thing about Bomber Crown as well is that if you were a sergeant and you were the pilot, you were automatically the boss. So if you had somebody of a higher rank, then that must be fairly unique in the armed forces. Yeah, completely unique. And the other thing that was unique about that whole crew situation is as far as I'm aware, it's the only unit in British military history where they self-formed. They weren't put together. They'd have been paired at heavy conversion unit training at OCU and then on at HCU, and they put their own crews together. 
And it's one of the reasons why you get such a diverse mix of nationalities in so many of the crews. The only exception to that diversity, I suppose, were the Polish crews who tended, I think language played an important part in that, but also the Polish Air Force kept their own identity but reported into the RAF and had their own stations and their crews were made up fully of Poles. Yeah. So we're talking about all of the sort of the horrors of bomber crown, the missions and things like that. But actually, when you first arrive at the centre, the first thing you see is the statue for Operation Manor, which is an incredibly positive side to bomber crown, isn't it? It is. And actually, you know, one of the things that we want to do here is, you know, every story has more than one side. But unfortunately, if you say to the majority of people, bomber command, they immediately think of Cologne or Berlin or Dresden. But actually, there was another side, and Manor is just part of that. It's the biggest section, but Operation Manor saved the lives of nearly a million Dutch people from starvation. And it was an incredible logistical feat. It was used as a blueprint for the Berlin airlift sometime later. And it all took off from Lincolnshire. So it's also very important as part of Lincolnshire's heritage. And it was such a rapid turnaround from the original plea from Prince Bernhardt and Queen Philomena to actually delivering that aid. And as you might have guessed from my surname, I have a, a slight connection to the Dutch. My husband is Dutch. The feeling of gratitude, even today, in Dutch communities is so strong for what those bomber boys did. They call them the men of manor. Mm. I have to say, I've been to a few different places for various things, but I went to Arnhem for the anniversary there and that's the first time I'd ever been to Holland and I was incredibly moved by how much it means to everybody in the area you know the flower girls and the candles at Christmas and things like that it is yeah it's incredible and actually one of the things that we're very keen to do here that they've adopted there which is their local primary school is responsible for looking after their local memorial so they learn about it but they also tend it and they take care of it and that's something very much that we would like to do. We were starting it and obviously then, as we all know, life stopped for COVID. But it's something that we want to get going again here, certainly on a local basis. The Bomber Command were also involved in repatriating through Operation Exodus POWs from across Europe. 72,000 POWs were brought home safely by Bomber Command. And then Operation Dodge, which brought back servicemen from the sort of Italian and North African arena, and without whom they were living in quite desperate circumstances by then. You know, they would have suffered because it was much harder, obviously, to get them back through road transport. No, I think that'd be an amazing idea to get the kids involved with, say, looking after or researching a specific member of aircrew. Is that something you plan to do, like, once we were allowed to have schools back in as a visitor? Yeah, I mean, actually, we've been working with schools throughout because the pandemic accelerated a plan for a digital learning platform. And so we've been working with schools digitally ever since they were allowed to go back. But since we opened the centre in early 2018, we've had 7,000 primary school children here. And we hold an annual service of remembrance where we run a competition. They write poetry about the importance of remembrance. But they also, each class makes a wreath and they lay it as part of the ceremony. Last year, we had to adapt that to take into account the whole COVID situation. And we ended up with over a thousand children involved, including some from Malta and Holland. So we'll build on that this year. But very much that's about the biographies. We 
send them information with photographs of people on the walls and they learn about the people that they were rather than just their service. And say, unlike a lot of memorials you go to or museums, you know, there's actually a lot of interesting stuff you can do. You've got the actors talking people's stories, which keeps it alive because, you know, rather than it's just been a black and white photo and reading something, it's someone dressed in the outfit at the time talking about what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, we made a decision right at the beginning that because everything we do here is about the story of the people that were involved, it's not about the aircraft because that's done brilliantly all over our county, that it had to involve those personal stories. And that was the original concept for doing those oral history interviews was to gather that information. I must stress, we're not a museum. We only have six artefacts across the whole exhibition and they're there to help illustrate individuals' stories. So everything we do is about the personal testimony of those who were there from all sides. And so you're right, having a young actor of the right age in the right uniform relating the story from a veteran really brings it to life. And it's essentially it's key to everything that we do here. As you say, everything has been thought out, obviously. I mean, I hadn't realised until I spoke to you just recently that the trees that you've planted, they signify where the stations were. That's right. So we have two peace gardens here. We have the International Garden, which has five beds planted in with plants and shrubs from each of the continents to represent the impact from across the world. And then the Lincolnshire Peace Garden, where we have 27 native lime trees, which are geolocated, which essentially means that if you looked at them from above, they would exactly replicate the station's place in the county. And beside each of those is a tree which describes not only which station it is, but which squadron served and how many people were lost from each of those. And for some of them, that's hard reading. The numbers are so high. I mean, statistically, the chances of surviving if you were part of Bomber Command were, well, second only to being a U-boat operative, weren't they? Yeah. And in terms of the numbers involved, you know, if you were a rear gunner, the likelihood is that you wouldn't get past your eighth op. That's right. I think you've got mentioned some of that. Out of 100 air crew in 50 squadron, only 25 completed the 12 operations. Yeah. I mean, as you say, you know, fill a football stadium with the people who didn't come back. Yeah. And it's... It's an incredible loss of life, but they were all volunteers. So that's the other thing to say is that not one conscript involved. They volunteered to do that. And you talk to several of the veterans who have done two and even three tours of operations. So their first tour would have been 30 ops. And then they'd have been sent for a break. And then they'd have been an instructor for a while. And then they could opt to go back into the operational field. Now, if you've been up there on 30 ops and you've been shot at, you've seen others not coming home, to go back up, that's the metal of the people that we meet every day. And I think that's, it's clearly something that people in Lincolnshire remember because you can't go anywhere in Lincolnshire without seeing a village sign with a Lancaster on it or a tea shop without some sort of remembrance in the window. No, absolutely. It's, it's in our blood in Lincolnshire and there's a real passion for it. Even without the statistical data of why we should be in Lincolnshire, that's why this centre had to be built here. There was nowhere else that was right to have this centre and this memorial. So where the memorial was actually located, it's right opposite the uh, cathedral, isn't it? So that's the first thing that people would have seen when they came home, or very possibly the last thing they saw when they went out. Yeah, and it's 
certainly when we first started bringing the veterans up here who had been based in Lincolnshire, that first reveal, that look from the spire over the cathedral was always, without exception, a really emotional moment. And you understand then the power that that building had on, you know, we're home. And it's such a, a strong connection. And then I'm sure you know, but the spire design was chosen because of the cathedral having been the tallest building in the world for 300 years with its own spire. But also that spires are synonymous with our county. And so that's why that shape was chosen. Of course, it's the height of the wingspan of a Lancaster at 102 foot or 31 meters. And so we've tried to connect wherever possible a link, direct link with the heritage. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I was also really fascinated by was you've got your infographic wall, which shows you every bomber mission, Luftwaffe, RAF, USAF, throughout the war in the space of 10 minutes. That's a mind-boggling thing to stand there and watch. It is. So that geography of war took 40 volunteers over a year to put together. So they tracked the latitude and longitude of every hit, the number of aircraft involved and the number of tons of bombs. And when you see us in 10 minutes, it shows every month through the duration of the war. And I always find it fascinating that actually for quite a long period at the beginning, you see very little happening at all. And that's where that whole phony war bit is really, I've never seen anything that demonstrates that as well. I have to say, I stood and watched it a couple of times, because as you say, you start off thinking, well, nothing's happening, you know, the first few months, and then you see the odd one up in Norway or something, and then they start to really ramp up through France. And then someone like, like Malta, Malta. Example, just constantly lit up, isn't it? It's a wonder that anything on the island was left. It had heavy bombardment all the way through. And obviously, you go to great lengths as well to keep things quite interactive. So you've got your app as well that people can download before they come along. We have. So that app is specifically aimed really at, I would say, sort of 12 and up. And it allows you to delve much deeper into the heritage. So we're a reasonably small exhibition here so any opportunity to squeeze in more interpretation we've taken it so that app can be used away from the center as well as here and then we have another app that's just been developed that is really for 11 and under which is on site and it includes all sorts of trails and activities and it's really looking at how children can interact with their heritage in a way that they understand so it's bite size multiple choice questions, quizzes, and it's all hosted by Gus the Gremlin. And he's proved very popular over the summer holidays. So it just means that we can adapt the story to every age group. And it's one of those things that if you don't get kids involved in it, if you don't tell them now, then they'll never know about it. No, exactly. And we're so blessed in this area because actually under the national curriculum, given our conversation about Bomber County, this falls smack bang in the middle of their local heritage sector. So now schools are allowed out again. We're already taking quite a lot of bookings for physical sites, but also virtual sites. And we also go into schools as well with outreach program. And it's key. Interestingly enough, when we held the last open service for the Children's Remembrance Service, we had 750 primary school children on site. The youngest was five, the oldest 11. They were immaculately behaved. And they got it. They understood the importance of what they were doing for that time, which is absolutely incredible. It is, absolutely. 
if somebody wants to come and visit the centre, I mean, are you back fully open now? What are your sort of hours? You- yep, fully open. We open Tuesday to Sunday, 9.30 to 5. And then Monday bank holidays. Other than that, we close down on Mondays normally. But it's worth keeping an eye on the website because we do a whole series of events for every taste, anything from a quiz to a 1940s weekend. So there's elements throughout the year where people can engage, even if their core interest isn't Bomber Command. But I think once they've seen these beautiful grounds and things, they'll want to come back. Because that's all free entry. So the only bit you pay here for is the exhibition, if you want to do the full exhibition, and a contribution towards parking. Because obviously to maintain 10 acres of grounds safely and to make them look as beautiful is um, quite a costly exercise. I can imagine. I have to say it was immaculate on the day that I visit. Good. I will pass that on. (laughs) And it's the perfect starting point if somebody wants to do a pilgrimage of Bomber Command you come to the memorial and then there's so many places within a couple of minutes driving distance that you can exactly and we have lots of information here so anyone that wants to engage with the heritage but doesn't know necessarily what and where everything is and what their specialities are then the team here are all trained in that and we also have some literature so we can help you find the aviation heritage site in our county that best fits your interest that's ideal. I mean, anybody who's got any interest in Bomber Command or wants to trace a particular family member who might have served, get in touch and you can Absolutely. help them. Yeah, they can do that through the website, which is internationalbcc.co.uk. There's all sorts of mechanisms and information on there where they can find information. And if they need any help, they can give us a call or drop us an email. I mean, having visited, I can totally recommend it to anybody with uh, even a passing interest in Bomber Command. So. We'll definitely go back. We'll see you again, I'm sure. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. Take care. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.